I'd like to advise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this episode of Out of the Box contains the names of Aboriginal people who have passed away. Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Mia Hull here on the podcast, streaming online or live on the radio from 12 to 1pm. This is Out of the Box. Each week I sit down with one guest and roll through the stories from their life and the songs that have meant something special to them along the way. This broadcast is coming to you from Redfern, which is stolen Gadigal land. I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the communities of Redfern and Waterloo. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I have the pleasure of talking to proud Dungadi man Black Douglas. Originally trained in illustration and photography, Black is a self-taught painter. He's been exhibiting for more than 20 years and has been an Archibald Prize finalist four times, including last year. Today, he's putting down the brushes and he's going to instead paint some stories using words and songs. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Black. Thank you for having me here. So your story begins... 65,000 years ago, more than that. But I want to go back just a couple of generations to your grandmother, your dad's mum. Where did she grow up? My grandmother was kind of oscillating between Kempsey and Dubbo. And um, as a young girl, she was, our tribal homeland is uh, Arakoon, and more specifically, Pelican Island at Jerseyville, and that's where our peoples um, basically were uh, navigating that terrain at the time. And anyway, she, she was stolen from there at the age of 14. So then she spent four years as a slave working for uh, white station owners and then was released at about the age of 17. So she then got on with her life and did it very well until she... Unfortunately, I'm at an early death at 36 from pneumonia. I'm sorry to hear that. Mm. When you say she led a good life, what did she do? Well, like most resilient blackfellas, um, you know, you got to laugh or you cry. And she married up to my grandfather, who was a white fella with German origins. And she um, lived a pretty wholesome existence at Dubbo at that time and, uh, and bore my my baby dad, Bob, and she had already had a, a, um, a daughter, Patricia Everingham, uh, from another relationship. So um, it was just fun having the kids at that time. And thankfully, my dad, Bob, uh, was because he had the care of that mixed race family, which is what the government wanted to achieve at the time. He was left to his own devices and didn't get plucked by the black car that belonged to the government. So your dad grew up in Dubbo as well then? Yeah, dad was raised in Dubbo and then um, started his working life at the age of eight. Yeah, what? Yeah, at the age of eight, driving we... driving a truck on the Batlow Apple Orchard. Can an eight-year-old even reach the pedals? I don't know how he did truck? it. Probably sat on a box or, you know, <laughs> yeah. in some ways. But 
Um, yeah, he certainly was managing to do that, and that a very different time back then. In this, so was this it normal continent. for eight-year-olds to to have jobs? To be work, absolutely, then? yeah. And that's uh, I think that's um, following from you know that would have happened through the depression, even though employment was limited. But you had to um, forage. You had to learn to have some kind of keep at a young age, otherwise um, you perished. So growing up mixed race in Dubbo, that's in western New South Wales, what was that like for your dad? Did he ever tell you stories from that time? Yeah, definitely. It was as, it was racially harsh as you can imagine back then. And the mission was in West Dubbo and dad was growing up in town. Uh, he afforded the luxury of being able to exist in town and ride his bike out to hang with the other mob in, um, in the mission. But nonetheless, it was still decidedly black and white. Yeah. And your your dad was friends with a police sergeant in Dubbo as well. Tell me about that. Um, dad was quite um, favoured by him, that, that particular sergeant, and that was a relationship that stayed for many years. Uh, but Dad um, was pretty handy with his fists and and he uh, it became a a bit of a trophy trophy house at the police station because when Dad got plucked out of the pub, the young sergeants would G him up, you know, on the way back to the station. And when he arrived at the station, the, the sergeant would just um, literally place bets on who would win in a punch-up between the sergeants and the, uh, the uh, constables and, the, and my dad. And it would be on out the back. And um, it was quite an entertaining spectacle. And, you know, that's... That kind of behaviour that when it was orchestrated, which is a classic time in Australian history, of course, uh, you can see how the boxing tents were modelled off such behaviour. So that's when you've got Jimmy Sharman's um, boxing tent travelling around the country towns and that's where, because everybody, if, if you thought you were a good fighter as a white fella, you, you weren't nothing until you fought a black fella and that's, that's just history here. Eventually your dad relocates to Sydney... Why was that? Looking for work. Uh, Everybody, if you wanted solid work, you had to come to the the big lights. And uh, Dad followed that procession down with a bunch of crews. And that certainly worked for him as a labourer in the early days and whatever job you could get as a blackfellow. Where did he land in Sydney? Parramatta. Parramatta. And is Mm. that where he met your mum? That's right. The Star Hotel. And that was treacherous waters. You know, a black man just boldly walking into a city like Parramatta and courting a white woman that worked in a pub. That was just just aching for trouble. We were talking about your grandmother before and, you know, the way that she was stolen. I want to play a song to that now. What would you like to play first? There's only one song for any mob who's enjoyed the Stolen Generation antics and, and that's um, took the children away. But th- this particular version is actually features Ruby uh, when she was with us, Ruby Hunter, and um, with Paul, Gr- Paul, Gr- with Paul Grabowski um, conducting Australian Symphony Orchestra. And um, if you don't have your tissues handy, you better grab that box. Grab the box of tissues and stay tuned. In a few minutes' time on FBI Radio, we're going to get into the early life of Black Douglas. Right now, though, we're diving into a track by the Australian Art Orchestra, Ruby Hunter and Archie Roach. It's Took the Children Away from the record Ruby. 
That was Took the Children Away by the Australian Art Orchestra, Ruby Hunter and Archie Roach. That track was a cut from the album Ruby. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull, and today I am joined by four-time Archibald Prize finalist, Black Douglas. Black, where were you born? Born in Blacktown, Blackstown, Toongagal country, and raised, began my early <clears throat> steps in Prospect in Wentworthville, in this kind of parts of Western Sydney. Uh, that still remains close to my heart because that's where I was trotting around with my grandmother and my grandparents and attended Prospect Public School on the Great Western Highway when it was one of the oldest schools in New South Wales. Can you paint a picture of what Western Sydney is like in the 70s? Where my particular grandmother lived, it's in an area which is called um, Prospect and it's really amazing to think back that it was all horse paddocks. So when you came out of my grandmother's front gate, it had not long been sealed, the road, and it was on Blacktown Road. As kids, myself and my cousins used to cross the road. You never had to worry about traffic. And um, we would walk all the way through these horse paddocks up the hill to St. Bartholomew's Church, which you can see from the M4 motorway. It's a very historic old church. And we used to play in the church and play in the graveyard and whatever. And, um, you know, in the scheme of things, in the course of evolution, in a blink of an eye, that place turned into an industrial area of which now you can't see a patch of grass. I guess most uh, remarkably is the fact that the first IKEA store in New South Wales was built opposite my grandmother's house. Mm. That was bizarre. All of a sudden this, you know, new wave of... Of, um, what, what did the house look like compared to the IKEA across the road? Oh, it's crazy. Like the Ike, IKEA looked like a UFO that had landed. Yeah. And um, and then there's my nan's old weatherboard house that was built by my pop. Mm. Yeah. And as you grow up, you grow an affinity for graphic design and illustration and art. Where were you in life when you took interest in those things? Well, on my grandmother's property was the business of the Brown brothers, which is my mother's two brothers, uh, Doug and Donnie Brown. And they were literally the most famous sign writers um, on this continent um, for a good period of the late 70s, early 80s. And so just watching these masters at work uh, was enough to make me want to pick up some kind of drawing apparatus. And and that's where the interest began. And uh, it came to a point where they put a brush in my hand and said, you know, if you'd like to help us, you can fill in this just to keep myself entertained, stop me from messing up their other work. And it really just developed from there. And I started uh, obviously discovering that what the skills that they had ran through my veins as well. So I was very young when I was just starting to to just um, tinker away at the sketches, whatever. But in my 20s, I kind of really knuckled down and really developed my illustration skills just at home as a hobby. Penrith was uh, really cold in winter so it was pretty easy to stay indoors and just um, tinker away at the illustrations 
standing back and look at the illustrations and my dad actually encouraged me to consider going up and checking out the university in Warrington, which is University of Western Sydney. And so I went up there one time with my mum and did an orienteering day and, and targeted graphic design, but with a strong focus on the illustration. And so I'd, I think I'd found my, my goal and that kind of helped me breeze through to get the, the BA in graphic design. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Long time ago now. When did you first start working in graphic design? It was around 1998, and that was uh, a job with the Australian Museum. And the Australian Museum were in the beginnings of piecing together the Indigenous Australians exhibition, which was the first major expose of Aboriginal artefacts that had ever been seen in the most contemporised way. And to be honest, it was just so chalk and cheese seeing you literally... before that, the exhibit that featured um, anything to the, you know, like a boomer, a little boomerang display of things on fishing lines and whatever, um, a, a kind of diorama of a faux campsite of these, you know, emaciated mannequins um, that were so dusty and and lice uh, and mite ridden that the, all of the kangaroo pelts and everything were just like so just deteriorated and that display had probably been there for some you know 50 to 70 years and to transform it into what we did was just the most remarkable thing so much so that that exhibition was designed to uh, run for seven to ten years and ended up running on for some 15 years or more so it was a very popular thing and that was a very important part of connecting to many First Nations cultures for me. Yeah, it feels like there's something quite profound about being in that project team and amplifying Aboriginal stories in the way that you did. Do you think at any point that flipped a switch for you and you started to think about art as a way of expressing your story to a bigger audience or changing the narrative a little bit? The pivotal point about being part of that project team was um, was meeting Kevin Butler, the Aboriginal painter from Wollongong, a beautiful man who was a very talented artist and was also a stolen child. And he was literally employed to paint a maze of boards, a, a, a dozen boards that featured his works telling stories from stolen generation and how it affects him. And they made a maze in the middle of the exhibition which separated the two halves of the exhibit. And um, he was painting in this uh, really funky basement room in the Australian Museum uh, filled with all sorts of awesome um, artefacts and whatnot and I used to go down there and at the start of my day have a cup of tea with him and and yarn up and um, he was the one that inspired me to start painting. It was that point when I thought you can get paid for painting somewhere else, that's so cool and so I realised that my time behind the Mac screen was going to be limited after that. Were you still living in Western Sydney when you started this graphic design work? Uh, when I was employed with the Australian Museum, I'd moved to Bondi and then um, Balmain and anywhere I could see water really I was trying to get to. But I still had parents back in Western Sydney, so I was you know, gravitating between the West and the East. Having been based in Western Sydney, we had moved further West to South Penrith as a family, as a young family, and South Penrith was the new housing estate in, in the West. And um, that was uh, 
quite a pivotal time because I became really transfixed on the Darug culture out there and and uh, there were still amazing sites that you could visit. And then I um, became kind of ordained or adopted into the Darug mob and particularly through the land council. And that's because um, you had to have a certificate of Aboriginality if you look like I do. My dad didn't have that problem, but if people don't know your mob and you're going for, that was the 90s was the time when they started to um, put emphasis on First Nation deployment in government institutions. So you had to present a certificate of Aboriginality and it was the Darug custodians of the Darug Land Council that, at the time that gave me that certificate. So Because on that certificate you have to have a significant community member recognise your Aboriginality as well, don't you? That's right. And so Auntie Edna Watson is the matriarch of the Borborongal clan and she was the one that gave me that and it's a very proud thing that I possess today. It's um, you know, even more so over the BA. <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations for getting that declaration of Aboriginality as well, Ben. You eventually relocate to Redfern, which is where you live now. What brought you here? Activism, blacktivism. I wanted to get my ear to the ground, heads up on what was happening. And the political centre point was the block. And, um, you know, that's uh, it's a far cry from what you see today. If you had something to voice, if you had a political issue, you could call a mob at the block and you know, start yelling and people would listen, people would come and you could attract a political gaze. And that's what I enjoyed most about what happened there. And that continued, as we all know, all the way through to the Trumanville that it is now. And uh, when the development started to be talked about, then it was only Ginny Munro who set up camp and attracted the political heavyweights in the community to stay there and oppose that development. Yeah, so in in the same way that you saw Western Sydney develop and the natural landscape change, you saw Redfern as a cultural epicentre change as well. Yeah, without sounding like a grumpy old grandfather or uncle, but um, (laughs) to have watched what has happened to Redfern over the last 15 years is truly remarkable. It's, It's like getting caught in a rip when you experience eyewitness gentrification in such a rapid flow, um, it's pretty remarkable. Let's soundtrack that. What song would you like to play next? Yeah, let's let's play Flame Trees by Cold Chisel. It's um it's that I think it uh, epitomizes Cold Chisel's um, amazing ability to to songwrite so succinctly this place. And um we all know for those people who came from a country area, you know that there's such a sentiment about how things don't change in certain places. And my favourite line in the song is, um, there's no change and there's no pace, everything within its place. So I'm talking about my hometown. Let's jump into that one right now on Out of the Box. This is Cold Chisel and Flame Trees. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5.
Cold Chisel on FBI Radio 94.5, a song selected by my guest on Out of the Box, Black Douglas. Black, in 1998, you were working at a school. Tell me about that. So after the stint at the Australian Museum, I felt the need to get some community connection. And I just randomly heard of this role that came up, and now I was fully qualified blackfella with my <laughs> certificate. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could apply for anything like this and, and go into a very interesting job. So the position was for an Aboriginal education assistant. It was at Riverston Public School. And I just loved the drive between South Penrith and Riverston. It, was, it just went through all the semi-rural and rural landscape, and it was literally a breeze of a drive, and it was what would become the beginnings of where I would pick up a brush. And that literally developed out of painting murals, a mural at the Elizabeth Street site, which was the junior school at, at Riverson Public School, where the boss man there, Brian Giles Brown at the time, the deadly principal from Canamble, he um, encouraged me to go down and work with the kids. And uh, it was the most fascinating job. It was, um, I just got pimped out so much to uh, all the different classes and just working with all these different age kids and and we knocked up our first ever effort at that school. What kind of stuff were you painting? It was all generally dedicated to the local area. All my murals have been like that and I'd already started to engage in Darug language and Darug mythology and so I was trying to introduce these images to places that hadn't seen them in a long time. And I guess that's um, testament to um, being able to narrate a good story later on. Spending that time learning Darug law, were you ever feeling any kind of yearning for your own law and the stories that your grandmother might have passed on to you? I wasn't at the time because it was so interesting. I was so involved in, in Darug culture and um, it was just so comfortable and special to be able to go to local sites uh, that I was familiar with or being introduced to in, in and around the Penrith region and the Lower Blue Mountains. And, um, and, you know, Dad was still shying away from talking about our history. You know, he had to grow up his life pretending not to be black, really. And so there wasn't a great deal of encouragement to, to even... We never even went up to Kempsey when I was uh, growing up around Western Sydney. So if your dad wasn't as involved, what do you think lit that fire in you that made you really want to learn? It was Auntie Jean South and Auntie Janice Dennis at the Durali Aboriginal Unit at the University of Western Sydney. Auntie Jean literally said to me, you've reached a fork in the road, so you can choose which way to go. And that's an incredible, incredibly privileged position to, to have. And, um, but you need to think about that. And uh, my heart was always going to go down the black road. And going down that road, you were doing the painting at the schools. And how did your practice develop from there? You were painting murals. What, what made you want to start painting on canvas? I wanted to start painting canvases because I felt that um, I need to have some kind of refinement in what I was doing. But also um, I was starting to just, my, my he- mind was bursting with um, visual narratives and stories of mission life. I was working with kids that were f- from 
the lowest socioeconomic background and I just love taking them home, you know. I'd have to go and fetch them from when they jumped out the window in class and ran downtown and I'd just left, drive down there and pick them up and then take them back to auntie who'd smack them over the bum with a, <laughs> a wooden spoon or something, you know. Yeah. Get back to school now. <laughs> What about that experience made you want to paint those pictures and, you know, express them in, in a visual way with paints and brushes? It just was a natural transgression. Yeah. Just, that naturally happened. And and I'd like to say that that was um, a culmination of the black and the white artistic genes, you know? Like yeah. it's uh, – I, I know that I would have been the guy carving the whale in the rocks at Bondi, you know, or – or the guy painting the images in the in the shelter. That's incredible. Mm. That's incredible that you that you can feel that. Yeah. And in doing that, you'd come from the graphic design background. Do you think that informed your approach to making art in any way? I think it definitely did. And there's there's some pretty obvious indicators in how my art is viewed nowadays. And the first and foremost is that um, my art is so is generally so adhering to the X and the Y planes. So that's the cursor, how your cursor moves on your computer screen or how you, you know, everything's a box and whatever. And there's some that kind of fine edge to the way I compose stuff. And the other is the coloration, which is a really interesting thing because um, my coloration practice is not rocket science. It's, it's just block colours. And... The origins of that was a black and white line drawing in my sketchbook, scanned, turned into a JPEG, and then the colours dropped in to yeah, the various... Yeah, you fill in the whole shape. Yeah, and, um, and that's Photoshop. Yeah. And that's how most of my early illustrated efforts for books was achieved. And so interestingly, somehow subconsciously, um, that morphed into how I paint a canvas. I think it goes without saying that when people envision Aboriginal art, even in a contemporary setting, they think of dots. And there's a real absence of dots in your work. Is that a deliberate choice? It was a conscious choice back in the early days when we had formed a collective for the group of Koori's in Western Sydney. And it was a fellow who had started an arts centre, a little tiny art centre and industrial unit. He developed into a little art centre for tourist visitation. But um, we had gathered on Wednesday nights and were just hanging out. We're, many of us were finding our heritage and uh, our connections and whatnot. So it was a really good little hub, a circle of artists. But everybody was painting dots, you know, and still often happens today in, in various areas in the urban environment. And because of my time at the Australian Museum, I, I'd witnessed all of this variety of cultures and uh, had an understanding that there's an uh, importance to be placed on appropriation. And so um, a little while down the track, I took myself to Papanya in um, west of Vallis, Mbantua, and straight to the heart of where the Papanya Tula movement began, which was the first celebrated commercial expose of dot paintings. And so I met those senior artists still surviving and um, got some stories and brought that back with me. And that made me really run from dots even more because now I had a cultural understanding of, of why that style is painted out there. 
and uh, it just I couldn't bring myself to just um, jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, you've got that appreciation of all the histories that mm. are in it. What, what do you say to the expectation on Indigenous people to paint with dots in Australia? It's a damaging mindset where we are today with what is perceived as Aboriginal art in inverted commas because that hasn't changed for as long as I've been painting and obviously hadn't changed since the 70s. 67 was the referendum. This is the black theory. 67 was a referendum. So all of a sudden you had to not kill black people and you had to have some kind of decorum about how you now engage, given that some 90-odd percent of mainstream Australians voted for that um, referendum. After the referendum, all of a sudden, blackfellas had a bit more freedom of where they traversed. And being industrial geniuses, two things happened. By being able to travel to other communities and seeing art styles and whatever, obviously the, the concept of dot painting started to spread. So did the concept of boomerang making and also didgeridoo making. And so that all started to flood southeast New South Wales. And that's why we ended up with the tourist shops that we have in, in Sydney, in Darling Harbour and the rocks and whatnot. And so that um, influx of uh, borrowing of styles started, Blackfellas figured out the market. And that's why we arrived at something that you can't really budge. And here's a little test for the listeners. If you just Google Aboriginal art and, you will, and look at that first page that comes up and that says that, that complements exactly what I'm talking about. How do you think that impacts your ability to get your art celebrated as a contemporary Aboriginal artist who doesn't paint with dots? So the adherence to dots and that Google search of Aboriginal art page sees that it's very hard to advance as a, a modern artist. And we're, we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place because most of the curators today, the Aboriginal curators in major institutions, are really encouraging of contemporary change because they want to raise the bar on how modern Aboriginal art is um, perceived by the rest of the world. So I feel that they're trying for that. However, the biggest market for Aboriginal art is dot painting. So that's the APY land stuff. So it's very hard to, to advance with your contemporary style it's literally pushing a boulder up a hill, and it has been since I began painting, because there's very little encouragement or, or aptitude in the lay community for people to know anything else than a cross-hatched, dotted dolphin on a tea towel. I'm, I'm sorry that you have to <laughs> push that boulder. That's, that's a lot. I, I feel like anyone listening to this remembers NADOC week in primary school where you walk into the classroom and they've got a few paint tubs in the middle of the table and um, Q-tips to dip into the paint and just make all the dots. Way to go. <laughs> well, the default measure is that you download a PDF on the government education website that teaches you how to make kangaroo tracks in the sand and a U-shaped figure mob sitting around a campfire and blah, blah. So that's what we're up against. And yeah. then when you show them a image of Yoni Scars's um, incredible glass-blowing installations, it's just like 12 feet over the top of their heads. Like, yeah. What? No, that can't be Aboriginal art. 
I want to jump into a song by the Warumpi band, Now I'm Black. Why did you pick this one? This is a really important one to me because at the same time I started painting was the same time I started playing didgeridoo. And that was about 98. And there are a lot of important cultural things that I was desperately embracing. And the didgeridoo is, is commonplace, a common perception that an Aboriginal boy will play it. The most positive thing about this notion is that it often gives um, kids like myself at the time, or young adults, a devout focus, and it's an incredibly challenging thing, and it's a very competitive thing to be able to be good at. And so um, I was seeking every kind of audio that was available um, that was different than Alastair Black's How to Play Didgeridoo, which was a a white fellow that taught you how to make basic sounds on a tape that made him um, stratospherically famous. And so this was one of the first songs I came across on um, on their, from their album Big Name No Blankets. And um, this is Animal Song, and it's just, uh, it's Uncle George playing uh, Yiraki, which was a rare thing for him to do with the Warumpi Band. It's Animal Song by the Warumpi Band on FBI. <laughs> Grumpy band on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I am joined by Black Douglas. And just before we were talking about your art, Black, in terms of a technical approach to practice, but I want to go a little bit deeper in that and talk about the stories behind your works. You were saying some of them in earlier days were informed by the lessons you were learning while hanging out in the Darug community. Do you think you ever now infuse your knowledge of Dungadi law and culture in your work? You know, I don't at this point. Uh, an interesting thing I experienced was um, as a, I still dabble in graphic design. It's a, quite a niche market for a, an Aboriginal graphic designer to, to um, be involved in that ether. So um, there came a point where a cousin of mine, who's a very famous cousin, who's Senator Aidan Ridge, former Senator Aidan Ridgeway, he wanted his corporate branding designed and asked me to do that. And I was familiar with uh, this particular style of carvings from our country, which was done on trees, technically referred to as dendroglyphs. And my knee-jerk re- reaction was to use this kind of style of imagery for his corporate branding. He took that back to the old people. He said, I've got to take this to the old people and ask them if it's okay. And... Um, uh, it was immediately dismissed. Um, I was just not permitted to use this imagery until I'd gone through initiation. And so we actually um, have a form of initiation amongst our people. And that's when I realised that um, you can't mess with the, the law, L-O-R-E. Mm. And, um, and I, I actually kind of walked away with my tail between my legs for many years. And, and it's only been until... Actually, right now, when I'm producing a mural of said mentioned Dave Sands, our cousin, that uh, I'm incorporating um, our dominant totem for 
Dungadi Nation. And what is your totem? It's a praying mantis. And it's a beautiful, a really beautiful, apt metaphor for this particular image I'm creating, which is, is a boxer. If you're looking at praying mantis, the praying mantis is like a boxer. Just, yeah, they've got their arms up. Ready yeah, to fight. Up, arms up, and they and they kind of sway back and forth, and yeah. can can move out of the way, and it's really cool. So that's um, literally the closest I've come to using any kind of um, absolute reference to our our nation. Where did you start to learn more about Dungadi law? Do you find that in history books? Do you find that in archives? Where does it come from? No, you have to find it through through your mob and through people telling you stories. And I was very fortunate to, when I first came to Sydney from the West, uh, I was encouraged to join Bomali Aboriginal Artists in Leichhardt. Um, Bomali is an artist-run initiative, a cooperative, and that's where most Aboriginal artists get their first leg up. You know, you get your first experience of what it's like to exhibit your artwork. And so... I would meet artists from various mobs and um, and I did meet several Dangadi artists in the course of my consistent time there at Bomali and over cups of tea we'd, we'd just talk about various language and various sites and various stories belonging to Dangadi folklore. And um, the State Archives of New South Wales have been really supportive in terms of um, exposing the historic records of my grandmother and our family, what what took place in uh, Arakoon and Jerseyville. So um, some years back, when Dad was still alive, uh, they contacted me and said they had this um, several photos of my grandmother. And it's pretty amazing watching your father tear up when he'd never seen... Uh, Dad always carried this little sepia, like, crushed photograph in his wallet. And it was... Um, of him as a newborn being held by his mother and Auntie Pat Everingham, who was the half-sister. She would have been about five, four, four or five years old. And that's the only image that Dad ever carried and re- retained of his mother. So then to have the State Archives say, we've got several photographs of your grandmother in her teens. Well, that's pretty special stuff. And they, they put on a morning tea for you. You go in there and they lay this stuff out. Fast forward um, to only five years ago, they contacted me once again and said we found some more um, written information about the grandmother. And they pull out this, you know, with the white gloves on, they pull out this 80-year-old ledger, this massive book, put it on this velvet cushion and go to the page. and, And there were the words that instructed the removal of my grandmother. So it's written by uh, somebody of authority in the, in the, in the um, state uh, welfare agency. And um, the words that instructed the removal of my grandmother and her two cousins from Jerseyville in 1924. That would have been so visceral to, you know, your grandmother, you knew your grandmother, you grew up with her, and then to have this piece of history come out of a state archive that encapsulates exactly what happened, her literally being stolen. That's huge. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable and um, certainly get the, the hair standing up on the back of your neck. I want to jump into a song now, Black. You've chosen Treaty by Yothu Yindi. Why did you pick this one? By the time I'd made a trip to Arnhem Land and learned to play 
Iraqi uh, Yongo style, which is the proper way, um, through my wawa or brother up there, Jakapura. Yeah, I came back and everything made more sense to me. So when you listen to the way um, this uh, fellow who was, is still revered as, as the greatest Iraqi player, which is a big call because all young boys play Iraqi and they're deadly players. But um, this fellow had this, um, you know, he was possessed by a divine entity of some sort that enabled him to play this way. And um, But coupled with the fact that this was from the album Tribal Voice, and this was um, this was the first time that Yuraki had that Aboriginal rock in Western music had um, reached the rest of the world. And sadly, it should have been Warumpi Band, but um, Warumpi Band were around at a time when it was still a racially uh, heated place. By the time we got to the Indie, and the the fact that this was uh, 1996, they sing about a treaty. And we haven't come anywhere near that since then. Listen to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're listening online, that was Yothu Yindi and Treaty. The song was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Black Douglas, a celebrated painter here in Australia. Black Douglas has been a finalist for the Archibald Prize, Australia's most revered portraiture prize, four times. What's that like, Black? Well, I'm still chasing Abdul Abdullah, so he's he's done it five times. So it's always competitive. That's the beautiful thing about the beautiful nature about the Archibald. But you know, we're now at a time that um, is a very welcome change in that prize, and um, all commendations to the people that are orchestrating that change at the art gallery. Because um, you know, when I was a finalist in 2015 for the first time with my portrait of Uncle Max Yulo, which hangs in the Redfern Community Centre. Um, I did a bit of Googling and we dug up the stats that uh, it was then the 95th year. Uh, this year is the centenary. This is a very important year for the Archibald. And But back then in 2015, 90% of the portraits that were winners until 2015 were of white male faces. And so we realised that, wow, this, we, we are now in this powerful position to make this change. And so now what you're noticing is um, a rapid change, a rapid shift to incorporate peoples of colour in that prize, which is a very welcome thing. Are you gearing your work towards the Archibald Prize with that goal in mind? Absolutely. So I, I'm only painting First Nations people. And a variety of um, it's. I've got the. I've got a little bit of momentum happening now after the four um, finalist achievements, and um, I know that there's a home for this change and these, this imagery. So um, we just have to keep it flowing. And I know that we're going to get your switchboards are going to light up for mob saying they want to be the next candidate. But let me just say that the the queue is quite long. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you've been at it for 20 years now. Obviously, you're, you're killing it now. Is there anything else that we can expect in the next couple of years? Um, well, you know, with your audience support, we're going to win the Archibald or at least win the Packing Room Prize as a start. And uh, that will be a historic first. And I always look to the goal of ultimately equaling Brett Whiteley because Brett Whiteley is the only artist that has won the Archibald, the Win, and the Salmon Prizes successively in one hit. And it's been too long a gap since he did that. And so now I think that would be a really, that would be the ultimate trifecta. And I, if I won all three in one go, in one sitting, um, I could quite easily retire from art and go fishing on Dungadi country. Is that where you want to end up yeah. in the end, yeah. back on Dungadi country? Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Black Douglas. It's been really special talking to you and learning these stories. Thank you, and it's been a very enjoyable interview, so thanks for having me in here. You're welcome. What song would you like to end on? Fight the Power, Public Enemy, PE, 1999. And um, this was when you... When you're stuck in a dead shit country town or, you know, Penrith was still a bit of a country town back then when I was a kid, a teenager, it's unfortunately uh, what keeps us searching for an identity. And most kids uh, here who are disenfranchised from their own cultures, you're seeking for a, searching for an identity, um, which has led to how this place is governed and how we exist today. Even Public Enemy was just who everybody looked to if, if you were black because... They made this record, which was incredible. And um, I, this song is arguably up there with one of my favourite all-time rap songs. Great message to end the show on as well. It's Public Enemy and Fight the Power on FBI Radio 94.5. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you did want to listen back to the show, you can find it on the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's also up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. And thanks for tuning in. Bye. Fight the power. <laughs> Fight the power! 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 We got to fight the power that beats! As the rhythm's designed to bounce with calcium.